anyway. you're gonna if you're gonna repeat it again, just make sure you really get that point out. You're really, really right. Yeah. Just make sure you really do that, and then that way I have that clip for forever. Okay. Go ahead. Well, you know, Craig, you're really, really right. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney for NPR Illinois Community Voices and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host today, Craig, joined by my co-host, Mr. Brett Rutherford. Well, hello there. And Ms. Vanessa Ferguson. Hello. I got to tell you, this is a really exciting day for all of us fans of the Muppets and Jim Henson in general. It's just incredible. Brett, I'm going to let you introduce our guest because you really facilitated uh, getting this guest for us today. You did a great oh, job. Well, yes, I had something to do with this, but I, my, the something I had to do is have really good connections. So I'm very thankful for those wonderful anonymous people, but you know who you are. But today on Beyond the Mouse, we are speaking to Muppeteer and all around wonderful puppet artist, Dave Goals. You may know him from the Muppets. You probably know him as the great Gonzo, but also Dr. Bunsen Honeydew and Zoot and so many more. Beauregard, oh my gosh, so many more wonderful characters, characters from Fraggle Rock, so many wonderful things. So that's that's all I know about Dave. Well, I know a little bit more, but I'm going to know even more after our interview, which I'm so excited for. I'm going to say I was hoping you would dance your cares away and mention his role in Fraggle Rock as well. I loved yes. that show growing <laughs> up. So I'm just so excited about this. Vanessa, your thoughts on getting to chat with Dave Goals. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? I'm so excited. We're, we all three of us are such big fans of a Muppet Christmas Carol. And for me, the real star of that movie comedy wise is Gonzo. He has the best lines. And so I'm so eager to talk to him about that movie. I know he's a big fan and talk to him about some of those iconic lines. Well, they're iconic for me, but yeah, I'm just so excited to talk to the great Gonzo. Wow. This is exciting. <laughs> It is so exciting. And, you know, he's also such a huge part of Muppets Haunted Mansion, which we were able to cover last October, because he really is sort of the longest running person involved with the Muppets. So he has had so many experiences working with Jim Henson as well that I really want to dig into because Jim Henson to me is one of those great American creators that is someone that is just like, I love studying Jim Henson. I've read the biography on him and it's just his kindness and the way that he built the Muppet studio is so incredible, much in the way of how Walt Disney built his company. It's very, in my mind, parallel type paths as far as the creativity and bringing that to the world. So just really cool to get a chance to interview him today. Brett, any final thoughts before we jump right in? Well, you know, Craig, you're really, really right. Because sometimes, because sometimes people will say Walt Disney and who's the new Walt Disney and they were saying Jim Henson and I'm like, going, you know, so Craig, you were really, really right. <laughs> what I know. is happening? I know here. what is happening, but this is Isn't about April Fool's Day. No, it's still March. <laughs> What's happening? This is about Dave Goals. And I can't wait to find out. Well, I have some questions and I just can't wait to talk to him. So that's all I'm going to say right now. Mm. Well, listeners, I can't make it any better than that. I will tell you that that audio clip will be clipped and will be used several times in our group chat often as the years go by on Beyond the Mouse, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I so, think it needs to be your ringtone, actually. <laughs> you are you really, are very... really right. 
Really, really right. You are really, really right. Really right. <laughs> really, really right. And we are going to get out of your way so that way you can hear our conversation with Dave Goals. I'm so excited. Can't wait for you to hear this. I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to talk to him. So let's get right to our conversation with Dave Goals. Dave, it is incredible to get to speak to someone with so much history and a piece of pop culture that I grew up with and that I've loved for my entire life. And I know that you're often asked in these interviews uh, about some stories of working with Jim Henson and the creation of the iconic Muppets. But I was hoping that you could start off by telling our audience maybe one of your favorite experiences having worked with Jim in particular. Oh, boy. You're asking... uh... You're asking me to plow through a huge, a huge farm full of memory plants. You know, it's <laughs> favorite memory with Jim. Well, I, I don't know if I've told this one lately. Back in, I'm trying to think when it was. It was just before. It was not too long before his death. We were shooting something in England. It must have been must have been Labyrinth, and we had. I well, also arranged to do, dial him up at telephone, answering messages. <laughs> so. It was something that was common in those days where you would dial a telephone number, a toll-free number, and you'd be charged a dollar or something. And then you'd get a one-minute message from whoever was putting on the uh, the dial thing. So we had dial them up. And we went in to record these after a full day in the studio and watching dailies. And that meant we got to the studio around 8 o'clock at night and worked until 10 or 12. And by that time, you know, mid midway through that, we were very tired and a little giddy. So this one particular night we were recording and it was Frank and Frank Oz and Jim and myself. And there was a timer, like if you imagine a timer face up, counting down one minute in, in between all three of our mics. We had music stands with, with, with uh, dialogue and we could sort of look over the music stand and see this clock so that we could kind of make our pieces time out to 55 seconds. Okay, so I fluffed a line at some point and I saw Jim start to laugh. I said, Jim, I'm on the edge. You need to go out now. And he, he said, oh, it'll be all right. I'll stay. I'll get behind my music stand. So he was crouched down behind, you know, just a normal little music stand, which is maybe, uh, I don't know, 20 inches wide by 14, 15 inches high. Mm-hmm. And here is a six foot one or two man crouching, trying to be hidden. But of course, I could see his hair. I could see the edges of his jacket. And he was shaking. He was laughing so hard. He was just, all, all that I could see was just shaking. And of course I lost it. And and then Frank started laughing. And then I got, I got back together again. I was okay, but Frank fell apart. And so I said, you, you both have to leave. Just let me just do this one. It was, it was one that was by myself, right? I just, just, I think it was Gonzo or somebody. Anyhow, Frank said, no, no, it's okay. I'll get in the drum booth, which was behind me. Now, you know, it's a recording studio, a big, room with a little room inside it for drums uh-huh. and uh, supposedly sound insulated. But of course I could hear the sound of this whining this kind of almost like Miss Piggy sound when he was laughing, he couldn't contain himself. So that's going behind me. Jim's jacket is shaking in front of me and I finally just lost it. And we had to stop, which happened to us all the time in situations like this, where we were retired and we were trying to record something at night. We had to just break for about 20 minutes to pull it together. And I, and I always think that there must be recording engineers all over the world who, if you mention 
the Muppets to them, they think those guys are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I, I was just, I was just going to say, you know, as a fan of the Muppets, I would dial a Muppet for a minute to hear that interaction. I, I, I want to hear the behind the scenes of the Muppets. Oh, I know you want to hear the great, right? Exactly. You, yeah, but, but that wasn't part of it, and we were we were trying to do it as characters, not as buffoons. <laughs> and so we we uh, we eventually got through it, but this this happened to us all the time. So. One one time I had lunch with Jim and he was a little discouraged, I think, because of the box office for it was either Dark Crystal or Labyrinth. And we had lunch in L.A. and we we're uh, outside just about to leave. And he said, you know, my favorite thing about all of this is. And I said, what? He said, it's when we laugh. And I said, oh. me, too. Me, too. That's and of so course, perfect. he was responsible for the whole company. I was just responsible to show up and eventually get my stuff recorded. But Jim was like he had this weight on his shoulders of looking after everybody and the business. And yet he just loved it when we just lost it and laughed. That's wow, so perfect. That's a great kind of boss to have. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's can you great. imagine? I mean, Creator. Mm-hmm. he was a remarkable human being, just such a such a great mentor, a boss, a friend. You know, and, 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 and you know, one of the observations that I made is that I, I didn't know Jim to have too many outside friends. I only once or twice heard of him having dinner with a friend who wasn't part of the Muppets. What I think he did was he hired people he liked and then those became his friends. And so we would shoot all day and then we might go have dinner. And it was a very efficient way for him to organize his life because he was so prolific that, you know, work and play were all commingled. And that's so great because you can tell that that dedication into each of the different properties that that Jim was involved in. And actually, uh, Brett, I believe you have our next question. Well, I was watching Prop Culture on Disney Plus, and you mentioned that you were originally a designer and then you became a performer. So can you tell us how you became a designer? And also, did you know that you had all this talent waiting for the opportunity to come forward as a performer? Well, I had tendencies as a performer. There were little signs that I can find when I look back. When I was 5 and 12, I loved puppetry. When uh, I was in high school, I was a yell leader, so I did comedy material at rallies. I was in the parent trap as an extra, and that that convinced me that, hey, you can make $24.20 a day if you're in show business. Well, I was only 12, and that seemed like a pretty good deal. Uh-huh. So, th- and there were other things too. We I used to sneak into television programs at at the studios in Los Angeles with a, my best friend, and w- you know there were all sorts of little signs that I, I-, I ought to be in showbiz. But I was practical, and my father was an engineer, mechanical engineer, and he was really brilliant, and he taught me how to solve problems. And when I was a kid, we were kind of a car family. His dad owned a Ford dealership in the Sierra foothills in California back in the 20s and or teens, 20s and 30s. So the the natural tendency was I was interested in cars too. And I built models as a kid and he showed me how to solve the problems of building models. You know, a kid would get very frustrated and almost have a tantrum. And say, I, can't, I can't get this together because I this if I put this on, this other thing falls off. And, and it's very frustrating. So he would always say, well, let's figure out what the problem is. And I said, well, I can't hold this while I'm doing that. And he'd say, well, then we need to make a holder. And it was all very pragmatic. And I don't think he was teaching me life. I don't think he thought he was teaching me life, but he was. 
it was extraordinary that he he had this way of taking on a problem and identifying it and identifying the problem is oh gosh it's what is it maybe 90 percent of solving it you know if you identify the problem it eliminates a lot of possible directions you could go so that that process led me toward designing cars i was the first person in my family to go to college so when it came time to apply in my senior year of high school i didn't have any idea what to do my folks didn't either and i thought well i've always liked cars so the world's best car design school is right over the hill from burbank where i was raised so i applied and somehow without ever having had a single art class i got in (laughs) and um and it was really because I had a drafting teacher in high school who was such a wonderful guy. I, in the summer school, I used to take technical illustration, which is an isometric drawing, not not regular perspective, but isometric, which doesn't look quite real. But you would stipple with an ink pen to render a form. And so I took that. And pretty soon he was letting me bring my airbrush in and do airbrush work. And then he was letting me design cars and do illustrations. So that's how I got into college, because Hugh Gateskill, who was this wonderful teacher of this elective class, let me do that. And that's the only reason I got in. You know, I mean, otherwise, I how would how would they know whether I was any good? So that was really fascinating. Anyway, that became my first career. Uh, I quickly realized during school I didn't like cars as much as some of the other guys, because, you know, you'd hear guys in the hall going, rum, rum. And I thought, not, maybe I, maybe I, and I didn't know what a Hispano Suiza was. And, and I thought maybe that, maybe I'm not, maybe this is not my deal. So I became a product designer, which meant you could design anything. Mm-hmm. And I just found out recently that when I was, you know, the bulk of my product design career was at, at Hewlett Packard. And one of the HP locations that I used to go visit a lot was about a mile from where I worked is now the Apple headquarters, the, the ring-shaped building. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, I, used, I was in there all the time, which would be right about in the center of the ring somewhere, was where oh, wow. Hewlett-Packard used to stand, <laughs> a, a division of Hewlett-Packard. Mm-hmm. So that was, I just realized that recently, and it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely, it is. And, you know, I have a a friend that's a product designer, too. It's incredible the amount of uh, different uh, innovation you can have in that field. And not unlike building the characters that you would go on to build later and being able to kind of craft and mold and design those as well. And it's just uh, incredible. Maybe instead, you didn't necessarily have as big of a thing for cars, but you were super into cannons and being fired out of them, perhaps. (laughs) I think you're taking a leap there. (laughs) <laughs> i'm embarrassed by that question sorry oh, sorry okay. that's that every now and then you know dave you. dave i'm a i'm a dad and so every now and then i i go down a path with these dad jokes that are just not very good so yeah, yeah. apologies we're, we're, there i'm a dad too so i guess i'll give you a pass on that <laughs> thank you I you're funny you but vanessa let me, let me jump in here and, and, and try to get us back on course so so some people you know they're listening to us talk to you and they may be wondering if you operate the Muppets alone or if you voice the Muppets we we know you do both so could you tell us about the characters well let me preface it by saying I, I've done a bunch of characters in various franchises that that we we started at Muppets and after a while I realized what I was doing when I created the character I was finding a part of myself that I could isolate and it was always a flaw it was always something wrong with me 
And I would make this character, but because it was the Muppets, I had to make it lovable. And so there was a sort of a really neat self-therapeutic thing about it. I mean, I loved taking these flaws and I loved finding a way to make them endearing. And uh, I think that's been my technique. I just, I, I, it comes from my dad again. You know, he and I used to sit at the breakfast table and he would talk, he would tell me stories about growing up in this little town called Sonora up in the Sierra foothills. And he'd tell me about the various characters that he went to school with. And they all had nicknames. I'll give you one example. Pukey Burden came from the Burden family, which owned the undertaking establishment. But the son was one of my dad's circle of friends. And one night they were in the Sonora Theater, which was a very funny, narrow little cinema that bent in the middle. (laughs) So if you're sitting in the right rear seat in the corner, you couldn't see the right side of the screen, <laughs> right? It's a funny little, funny little old brick building, you know, almost from the gold rush era. So there was an unfortunate incident in the balcony one night when the burden boy got sick and there was a very irate woman sitting directly below him. That's how he got the nickname Pukey Burden. Oh, no. But anyway, I grew up, I grew up hearing all about all these colorful characters. And even though we were building things and talking about, you know, design and building, those characters were always constellating around me. And I had, I found my own characters at school and, you know, in my life. And I just really loved it. I love, I love the variety of humanity and I love the odd characteristics that people have. So that just became something that was a natural for me. And then when I saw the Muppets on Sesame Street, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm eventually going to get to your question, but I saw the characters on Sesame Street and that was really, that was kind of, the early part of the Muppets doing characters, you know, prior to that they did bits on Ed Sullivan and so forth that were high concept, which I also loved. But when I saw them doing characters, for some reason, I just keyed into it. I just absolutely latched on. And I was a a fan working at HP and I started making my own puppets. One thing led to another. Anyhow. So the process of making these characters, Gonzo is a part of me that is crazy, but free, you know, that that being different, sort of sets you free in a way or it can yeah in fact i have a painting back there that bruce mcnally painted for me came from an idea that i had about all my characters standing in a line together and kind of holding hands and each one was expressing their character so on one end was zoot and he's just kind of off in his own world playing the sax the other end was large marvin eating his rice cakes you know from his feed bag he was from fraggle rock and in between, you saw all the other ones, or most of them. And, you know, it, it, I, I just, I treasure a career that lets you do that, that lets you find little aspects of your personality and then and then try to figure out whether you can love them. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know when we spoke with puppeteer John Kennedy, you know, he described that, that you it's really com- a commitment to move the Muppets in the way that you do. He's had to, he told us he had to operate, uh, I think, upside down. Well, uh, and, and I know you all have been in uh, kind of awkward positions or strange places uh, trying to maneuver the Muppets. Can you think of any that are the most shocking or the strangest that you've had to, to do to, to maybe operate Gonzo or something like that? Well, it's, uh, I, I will. <laughs> I'm going to answer your question. But first, I would preface it by saying that People always want to know who does the voices. That's their first question. Oh, who does the voices? We do the voices. 
And the voice is the easy part. It's what people have <laughs> no concept of. The voice is the easy part. You know, you look at a figure, you look at a character, and you you ask yourself, well, what kind of sound would come out of this creature? Wh- who is he? What's his history or her history? Why would they, what would their way of moving be? Why would they act? And the larger question is, how do you physicalize the performance? So how do you, how do you perform uh, one character versus another? You know, one might be very big and slow and clumsy. Another one might be agile and little and fast. But the giving, you know, doing the manipulation to make what is essentially a doll appear to be alive is the hard part. So your question had to do with some of the bizarre things I've had to do. Well, uh, God, there are a lot. I'm not, I, I Have think I blocked them. Have you been in the canon? So now I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, of course I've been in the canon. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> of course. That's good. Of course. Yeah. It was last Tuesday. But, uh, I remember. Yeah. So. I've been, I've been buried at the dump in a pile of trash in Toronto. I've no. been in a chicken coop with a dozen chickens, uh, in, in the petting zoo in Toronto. I was in a pound, uh, a, a small pen with a 700 pound sow working, lying next to her. And the zookeeper said, if she rolls toward you, get out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause it's, yes. you'd just be squished. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they like to hug too. I, 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 you can even, you can like hug cows now. I, that's like a thing. Yeah. You've heard about that recently. Yeah. It's yeah, great. Yeah. I have a friend who raises cows where we live and they're just raised to, to have a life. You know, they, they don't, they don't, they're not going to ever sell them to, to be eaten. Mm-hmm. They're not going to milk them. They're just living on this beautiful 400 acre ranch. And wow. it's, it's that. a, that's, it's a great that's, gift that's... to those cows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, yeah, so those are some of the things I also told our head writer, Jerry Jewell, who, despite the fact that you'll always see him grinning, was a sadistic guy. And uh, <laughs> I'm laughing when I say that. Yeah. He was also a wonderful yes. guy. But he wrote, you know, I, I, I told him we were once at a place where we went on a roll on where well, there was a roller coaster. And I said, I'm not going, I'm not going on roller coasters. They could do just my luck. I'd be the one where the thing comes off the track. So immediately when we got to Fraggle Rock, he wrote traveling Matt onto a roller coaster. And I, I had to ride a big old fashioned wooden roller coaster 13 times that day to get all the shots. Oh, no. And uh, oh, wow. and and ever since then, I've been a huge fan of roller coasters. So I love roller. Coasters. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I go on. Good. I like the spirally ones. I like the upside down ones. Oh, wow. I go on everything. But that was that one. That one sort of uh, broke the ice for me. The the thing I love maybe more than anything about the Muppets is their empathy and their humor. And it's something that they always seem to bring in all of the different characters. It's just this witty, witty humor that never speaks down to the audience. It's always kind of more highbrow, but in a way that's really accessible. And I was just wondering how you would describe the humor that's used, particularly in the Muppets. And do you uh, equate that directly to the spirit of what Jim was trying to do with the the Muppets? Or is there someone else that you would credit with that? You were just talking about your head writer. But what's the Muppets humor mean to you? Well, Jim gathered together a production entity and he gathered like spirits and he had enormous appreciation for diversity. So nobody there was the same as anybody else. And that shocked me when I first went there because I came from Silicon Valley, which is very homogeneous. You know, it's beige. Everything's beige inside the the company and it all matches. (laughs) It's really strange. (laughs) So then I get to Jim's place where everything is wild and these people are all kinds of characters 
And I quickly realized I love characters, so this is going to work out great. But I was a little shocked at first. So Jim built this this culture at Muppets, which was sort of reflected his philosophy. And he also drew people with compatible philosophies, if not the same. So there was a great respect for diversity. And of course, this is what my dad had taught me at the breakfast table, that, that all these different kinds of characters really enrich life. And it became an unspoken part of the philosophy at Muppets. Unspoken because Jim never talked about his philosophy. He just showed it. He just, it was on display. You can see the way he acted with everybody. And, and that was his philosophy. That's wonderful. Wonderful. So, Brett, I believe you have our next question. Well, I have to tell you that Gonzo and I have something in common. Uh, yes, a few, uh, well, yes, a few. You sure you want to talk I, about this? Yes, actually, <laughs> I do very much so. Um, a, a few years ago, I was visiting the Illinois State Fair and I came across the chickens. Now, well, I honestly became fascinated. So now I'm not only a fan of Gonzo, but also a, a fan of Camille. So can you tell us how they met and what's the secret to their successful relationship? <laughs> You're asking me an internal reality question, which yes. I don't really do that much. Okay, well, that's fine. I, that's okay. That's perfectly yeah, fine. But if you, like had, going, if you had Gonzo I, I relate. There, Oh, well, I relate totally to Gonzo, at least, well, at least on the idea that chickens are fascinating. I don't know I'll that tell I go you the as human far story. as he does, so, but. <laughs> I'll tell you the human story about how that happened, how, it, how mm -hmm. it originated, which it wasn't really a Gonzo internal story so much as just working with Jim, really. Mm -hmm. Jim liked chickens. He thought they were funny. Because, you know, when you get up close to a chicken, the way they look at you and they, the sounds they make are just so intriguing. So I can understand that. And so at one point, you know, they were always trying to, the writers were always thinking of uh, weird acts for Gonzo to do. And they decided that he would have dancing chickens. So they called our animal trainer, Mike, the animal trainer, and uh, asked him if he could train chickens to dance. And of course, as he always said, he said, absolutely, I can do that, but I'll need three weeks. And so three weeks later, Gonzo was auditioning chickens for the show. And they could not dance. <laughs> None of the animals that came in that Mike brought in could do what he said they could do. Never. <laughs> Five. Six, and so the yes. Gonzo sitting on a trunk down in the basement of the Muppet Show, and he, the, the, the Mike was outside the door, and he would throw a chicken in, and this chicken was supposed to dance for Gonzo and audition to be on the show. No chicken danced, and one chicken came in. And, and, of course, I was supposed to ad-lib because you couldn't write what – you didn't know what the chicken was going to do. So the chicken pecked around a little bit, and he asked her for a two-step. Could you do a little two-step, you know, rhythm step? And he, and nothing. The chicken didn't do anything. And then eventually the chicken turned around and pecked its way out the door. And Gonzo turned to camera and said, don't call us. We'll call you. And he, <laughs> he said, looked at the camera and said, nice legs, though. And Jim just <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> I thought, it was, I thought it was so funny that, that Gonzo, of all people, would like a chicken's leg. Oh, you know, that's cool. yeah. the, the aesthetics wow. are so wrinkly and so different. But um, well, anyway, yeah. that's that's how that started. Wow. Oh, he, so all of a sudden, he became attracted to chickens. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, it works. You don't question. You know, you be you. Don't question. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that you shared that story because it leads me into my question, which is about the jokes. And uh, we have talked, uh, Brett, Craig, and I have talked a lot about Muppet Christmas Carol and Muppet Treasure Island. And and we've tried to figure out if the jokes are written for you or if they're ad-libbed. Um, I was actually surprised to hear you say in another interview that one of my favorite lines from A Christmas Carol, you ad-libbed, where the pig says, that was a fine meal. Where should we go now? Let's have uh lunch. Uh, I, I love how that starts off the movie. It just gives you a hit of that humor right off the bat. <laughs> and that was created by you. So can you tell us and, and kind of end our discussion for us of how much of the dialogue is actually ad-libbed? Well, this is real show business and it's written. You know, everything is, is written, but we have the latitude to ad-lib and play around. And if something works, uh, it can stay in. So another example from that movie, Christmas Carol, was uh, Gonzo and Rizzo did this business uh, where oh, I, forgot, I can't remember the business. <laughs> Actually, but it was it had to do with uh, the coming over of a huge fence and Rizzo falling. Oh, yeah, Gonzo was going to catch him, and uh, and Gonzo missed and he hit the ground, and then he realized he forgot his candy, and so he went back through the fence. It was wrought iron, just walked through it and got the candy, and came back, and and I had lived. You are such an idiot. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was just something that we kept because it was funny, you know, at the moment. Yeah. But it wasn't, did, that wasn't in the script either. Did you ad lib the line or was it written for you that um, I know this story like the back of my hand? There's a little mole on my thumb and a scar on my wrist from when I fell off my bicycle. Was that you well, or is that in the script? Your, it's my favorite line. Well, that was written. Oh, perfect. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, that was Jerry Jewell and uh, uh, Kirk Thatcher who wrote that. I'm not sure which one wrote that line, but it was a nice, nice bit. So one more question. Do you all do like improv practice or training? Because honestly, when I'm watching a Christmas Carol, and I think this was my argument to my fellow co-host here, I was like, this has to be ad-libbed because they're reacting to each other. Like we do in our improv group. Do you guys practice this or it's just, you're all just naturally that funny. Well, we spend a lot of time working. When we're working, we spend a lot of time together and we just play. So we don't do formal exercises and we don't rehearse. We uh, show up and we we do what's called blocking and taping or blocking and shooting, which means you get on the set. Director works out where you're going to be and where the moves are, where you're standing at a certain point of the scene. And and we contribute to that. and, And that's how the scene is rehearsed and then we start shooting and and by the way you know i know for me anyway i'm still rehearsing when we're shooting you know i'm still trying to get it right and uh uh, after a few takes we we you know we all we all peak on different takes so we try to find a place where we all peak at once doesn't (laughs) always happen but that's Mm -hmm. that's the take that gets used (laughs) <laughs> yeah but it's it's an informal process uh we we run lines with ourselves at home you know we we will rehearse at home or think about how we're going to play something at home uh we can always meet with the writers and discuss possible alterations to what's been written um uh, and you know basically our producer from fraggle rock said it better than anybody has and he just said we're all working in service of the best idea and the truth is, the best idea is always undeniable. We all pretty much know what it is. And, you know, if you're advocating idea A, and somebody comes in with idea B, and it just seems to be better, 
how can you advocate for idea A anymore? So you now you advocate for idea B. You know, it's just it's just clear what if something's working, it's usually clear, and we choose that. Yeah, mm. yeah, I love how you all collaborate together. I, I promise, I have just one more Christmas Carol question. So I I actually saw you tear up watching it, um, and I'm up at Christmas Carol, and you said it was a perfect film, and I think everyone here would all agree. But what is it that makes it so emotional for you, or, or makes you feel like it is that perfect film? Wait a minute, you saw me. You saw you and me Brian Henson up? had a, a did a, a video together where you both reviewed the film and then at the end you were like you had you're like i have to leave (laughs) oh i can't i can't watch it dry-eyed i can't yeah Mm -hmm. me because i think it's such a profound story that's all on dickens it's a profound story and weirdly enough with all of our weird characters we're able to service that story really well yes you are (laughs) it always breaks me up i always does i still haven't gotten through it intact yeah, it's, and, and it's, it, it's because Michael Caine played it for real. He played it absolutely for real. And then that combined with how effective the ghosts were and how wonderful the writing was. And um, our characters we used. Uh, Brian Henson said something really interesting when we were about to shoot. He said, he said, it's it's neat that when you're about to cry, you're holding it in. And then something funny happens. It catches you off guard and it releases emotion. And then you're crying. And I, and I, I thought that was really observant on his part, and it's absolutely true. It's just, it just does happen. That's so excellent. Now you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Fraggle Rock, and I think it's so great because I have a six-year-old child, and I was so excited when Fraggle Rock was returning to Apple TV Plus. And so I'm wondering, how is it to revisit some of those characters that you had established long ago and kind of bring Fraggle Rock back to life? How has that experience been for you? Well, Fraggle is one of my all-time favorites, along with Christmas Carol and Emmett Otter. Uh, these, these are my top three, if I had to choose top three. We have a ton of Emmett Otter fans, I will tell you. There are a oh, lot yeah. of Emmett oh. Otter fans out there. <laughs> I love yes. that. I just love that show. It's uh-huh. just, I, I guess I'm always attracted to shows that have an emotional, yeah, you know, an emotional, an emotional uh, quotient, you know, that's, that has some some value beyond being funny mm-hmm. um anyway yeah so uh, working with fraggle was a real honor i knew that lisa and brian had been trying to get movies going for years and uh, nothing ever quite caught hold and then when the pandemic started and they did uh, apple asked i guess they were talking to apple because they'd already done a show for apple but they we're talking about what would be good for kids who are stuck at home. And uh, I think Apple said, can you do some Fraggle shorts? And so uh, we did. And that's how I got involved. And then Apple, Apple just loved the, the response to those and immediately said, let's do a, a new series. And so um, I knew that Lisa was thinking about it. I was really tickled when she called me to be involved because um, it's one of the most important things I think, to me that I've ever done, you know? Um, and it seems to, it seems to be important to a lot of viewers too. Yeah. I, it was a great joy this last year to work on it. It, it absolutely is. And it's, there's so many different properties that the Muppet studio and uh, Jim Henson helps to foster. And all of you bringing these characters that just make 
uh, again, the, the world is a tough place for kids to adapt to, but a lot of the properties that you've been involved in directly in creating help make the world a bit of a safer place for those children and mm-hmm. to be able to explore creativity and imagination in a way that is so important for them to grasp at a young age. And whether that's uh, characters on Sesame Street or the Muppets or Fraggle Rock, it's it's all these different areas that really um, just help not only my childhood, but now I pass in that on to my son. It's incredible the longevity of these characters and the imagination that they've brought into the world. So I I don't, that's not really necessarily a question. It's just something I felt like I had to say to you because it just, it means so much to so many people because of the art that you've created. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Gosh, Craig, that's very nice to hear. Um, I, I feel the same way about it for myself. I feel that it's been a blessing in my life to work on something that is humanistic and celebrates diversity and has uh, an emotional basis. Um, even our comedy is is character comedy. It's, some of it is jokes, but but mostly they're they are character based. Everything that we do is character conflict. And again, it goes back to having breakfast with my dad. You know, for me, hearing about those funny stories from his childhood. Um, it you know, and of course, I have funny friends. I have lots of oddball friends, uh, not oddball, but unusual friends, and. Uh, I have one friend who's in medicine, so it's supposedly a serious, it's a serious concern. He's one of my best friends ever, and he, I always say that he's a cross between Albert Einstein and Bugs Bunny, <laughs> because his mind, That's fine. he's so smart, and he knows so much about medicine, and he, he's he's scientifically just brilliant, but he's also just so wacky and so mm-hmm his mind just goes places. I don't mean that he talks like Bugs Bunny. I mean that he, he is just, you just don't know what to expect from him. He's just got this wonderful, wonderful element of surprise to his character. So anyway, that's part of what we try to include in our work too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brett, I think you had a, a question. Well, last summer on Muppet Babies, there was an episode titled Gonzarella. And the show, the show is about little kids having fun. But this episode is also about self-expression. And the show opens a conversation about gender identity and inclusion when Gonzo hears the story of Cinderella and sees her amazing dress. I mean, I watched the episode and it's about play and trying new things, as well as the weightier topics that I just mentioned. Now, you don't provide the voice for Gonzo for that series. But since you spent so much time with Gonzo, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, well, I wasn't directly involved with it, and I haven't actually seen—I haven't actually seen the show, so I can't comment very accurately, except to say that I—I I like what they're doing. I think that's a great idea, and I—who better to use than Gonzo? You it's know, great. I mean, it was so—it was—it was presented so just matter of fact and simplest, and, and just so easily that I thought that was you know a great message for you know for children you know I wish that we all had that when we were growing up because I think oh yeah we not have the problems that we have now so or well at least less, yeah perhaps yeah I mean tolerance is a big part of what we do I mean Kermit could not if he didn't have tolerance could not Kermit couldn't r- run the backstage crew at the Muppet Show, you know, <laughs> yes. it, just, it would be impossible. He has to have tolerance. But it's such an important thing. I mean, my parents raised me in a, they did a couple of really lovely things. One of which was when I, I think I was seven, maybe, 
I would go Christmas shopping with my mother because we didn't have a babysitter. We had to take the streetcar from Burbank all the way to downtown Los Angeles because there weren't no shopping centers yet. You, you had to go to the big stores. So one time on one of those trips, I, I saw this boy doll and it was about this big. And I, I remember thinking, which I'm just saying like eight inches tall. And I kind of wanted it. For, I didn't know why, but I thought, yeah, I kind of want that. It looks neat. And and then I got it home and I thought, I don't want this. <laughs> what did I, I felt so bad that I asked my parents to buy something that I ended up not using. But to their credit, they did. You know, they just said, okay, who wants that? Give it a try. Yeah. It was the sweetest thing ever on their part. Another one I'll tell you that was formative for me was when I was in the seventh grade uh, or eighth grade. Science was a big thing in America. We were going to space. Um, everybody was getting microscopes that year for Christmas. You know, all the kids were getting microscopes so we could look at little things. And I was going to get a microscope too. <laughs> but I saw this ad on TV, like a TV only kind of thing you had to send away for a product. Um, and it was a an airplane that you could fly. And it, you, you basically had a flashlight case with batteries in it and a little motor and then a cable that went out to a little plastic airplane and the cable turned the prop. And so you could turn the switch on and go around in a circle and fly this plane. And it looked like so much fun in the ad. And I asked, well, I, I told my parents, I, I'm too old for that, I, but it looks so neat. And they got me the microscope and then they got me that plane too. And it was, a, again, uh-huh. another one of these examples of, I don't even know how conscious they were of, being tolerant but they were and i had a lot of fun with that airplane you know sure. and so i'm very grateful to them for not forcing me to grow up too soon mm. i'm can... grateful to my wife for the same thing <laughs> i can learn i could probably learn an awful lot from your parents uh in, in uh, my own parenting for sure but uh, you know you gave us this gift uh, at christmas of a muppet's christmas carol but now you've given us another gift at halloween with the Muppets Haunted Mansion, and especially as Disney fans and Disney Parks fans, that was such a great special. And I loved seeing Gonzo spotlighted in that special in such a way. Uh, any stories that you want to share from your experience in bringing that special together uh, from this last year, really? Well, uh, I, <laughs> I tried to stay out of the building as much as I could. We <laughs> shot it in April last year, and uh, it was my first time out of the house in about a year, over a year. And I was really uncomfortable being on a set, even though we were, you know, COVID tested. But it was a small studio. Everybody was too close. The crew was wearing face shields and masks, and we were wearing masks, and it was hot and humid, and it wasn't much fun. And we didn't have a set. We were working with an AR wall, a uh-huh. reality wall. So... Um, it was hard to keep our bearings. Like we didn't, we weren't, weren't always sure where we were, and the, our, the wall did not work very well either. So uh, making it was a bit of a hassle. And and of course, as soon as I finished a shot, I would run out and get in my trailer and just hide. You know, I just wanted to hide from COVID. So mm-hmm. um, I don't have a lot of stories from that shoot. I have to tell you. No, that, but you know what? The, the result of it was uh, wonderful because I feel like it is something that we can return to and be able to get that almost in a way uh, of making it like a tradition that you have as a Muppet Christmas Carol. You can now have that and it will live on. So wonderful uh, piece for us for sure. But Vanessa, I believe you had our next question. 
Yes. Well, we've heard. I've again. So I've I've Wait, heard I, you. Hold it a second. Hold 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 the phone here a second. How did how did Craig know that Vanessa had the next question? You're in different places. Uh, we we uh, prepare. You, you we do. You guys prepare. prepare. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. We. Yes. I was just just about to say I've watched a bunch of interviews. So when I say I've seen you, I haven't actually been outside with binoculars, but I've uh, I've there seen many interviews with you in it. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm glad it's not me this time. Yeah, that, yeah. That's more than I can say for us. But anyway, so I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was no, just surprised great. that that Craig knew that you had a question. Anyway, go ahead. Mm. Yes, yes. Psychic so, too, you know. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. We yeah. do, we do spend an awful lot of time together, Dave. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, so uh, uh, I've heard you say in other interviews that SNL star Bobby Moynihan is he's a big fan of the Muppets. We know Jason Siegel's a big fan too. Uh, we also love seeing John Stamos and Pat Sajak in the Muppets. Um, but I'm sure you've worked with a ton of celebrities over the years, and I'm wondering. Are there other celebrities out there that you've crossed paths paths with that are just big, big fans of the Muppets? You know, it's weird. We find that a lot. Um, like the cast of SNL for the last fifteen years, they seem to have been raised on the Muppets. So they they uh, they've gotten excited that we were there. One of the times that I've been, um, it's just such a surreal question. You're asking a great question. What's it like to work with all these people who are well known? And it it it's it's weird because I don't I'm not well known, so I don't exist in a celebrity world. I don't have to have people staring at me in a restaurant. None of that happens to me. So I really have an ordinary life, a normal life, and I love that. I wouldn't want to be. I just wouldn't want to be uh, always watched by everybody and and i could see it happen like if i go to a party or something not that i'm going now but when i used to go to parties i could see the word go around the room you know i could see oh that guy and and i and then i realized oh now i'm being watched like if i turn around real quickly somebody's looking at me and i realize what well, i have some little taste of what it's like for somebody who's really well known and i don't want that <laughs> i don't yeah. really do not want that so to answer your question about working with all these people, I think the part that excites me is that they're all good at something. You know, they can all bring their special talent to bear. And I remember noting during the Muppet series, the Muppet show series, that we made the show out of nothing. You know, people would walk in the room and then, you know, it's Danny Kay. So he can sing and dance. He can really do it. You know, Elton John can really play and sing his music. And every take is perfect and good. And they're all different. They're, but they're excellent. And I just thought, what a ringside seat I've got. You know, all these characters yeah. coming through. And it's still that way. You know, people come through. And they, they, can, they can actually do what they do. So it's very exciting to watch. But I, you know, I leave it at the studio. You know, I, I've, I don't have very many famous friends. Um, but my friends are interesting characters. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love that. Well, speaking of Bobby Moynihan, the Muppets take the Hollywood Bowl is incredible. I, I watched on YouTube. I Sorry, I wasn't able to go to the Hollywood Bowl, but it's just so good. Do you have any special memories of that evening at the Hollywood Bowl or rehearsing or any of those fun oh, stories? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, first of oh, all, yeah. I, I prefer to work on film or tape, film or recording. Mm-hmm. Because you can you can perfect your work, 
live live stuff is one take theater you know you just have whatever happens is what happens and you hope it works and uh the weird thing about the hollywood bowl was we had a dress rehearsal on the friday before we opened and it finished like around six o'clock at night you know in the evening and everything went wrong monitors weren't working uh music cues like some of our music was pre-recorded but the hollywood bowl orchestra would play along with it and it was like a bar out uh, of sync and everything went wrong and i thought well better just have fun with the audience because this is going to be a disaster went and had dinner came back and we had a, a perfect show the only flaw was like at one point kermit's mic turned off for just like a quarter of a second. I thought, how the heck did that happen? <laughs> and then wow. all three shows were very good. They all went really, really well. The, all of the technical stuff came together. The performances were fine. Um, I didn't. I can't say that I ever got loose with it, but I was pleased that it was working. But I, I don't really like that kind of pressure for myself. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's yeah, a lot. Eighteen thousand sure. people. And it oh, was it's huge. It's huge. Another yeah. another thing I'll I'll mention about that was that it was uh, there was one moment where Gonzo came out and talked to Bobby on stage, and so I was on a little rolly, which means my, I was sitting like five inches off the floor and rolling with my legs, and um, they they lit up the house lights because Gonzo was ostensibly asking the audience questions, and I could see eighteen thousand people sitting up there in the Hollywood Bowl, where I used to go as a kid with dates to watch various entertainers, Trini Lopez, Andre Previn, God knows, I can't remember, all these people that I went to see at the Hollywood Bowl. And of course, I was sitting way up the hill, <laughs> about two thirds of the way back in seats that I could afford. Anyhow, now I'm, on a, on a, <laughs> I'm rolling out there on this little rolly chair, like a spider, holding Gonzo up. And the lights came up and I just, it was like we had uh, 18,000 of our friends over for to the house. Mm-hmm. It was the weirdest moment. I remember just thinking, we're, we're all just together here. They can see mm-hmm. me and I can see them. It was the strangest moment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it went, it went fine. And Bobby is great. I, I'm glad you came back to Bobby because, gosh, I met him in 2009. I had taken my daughter to New York. We were shooting the, I think it was the, the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center. There was a special around that. And so we were appearing on that. And we were out in front of 30 Rock uh, over by Fifth Avenue. There's like a colonnade that goes, or not a colonnade, but buildings on both sides. It goes back to the ice skating rink and the tree and then 30 Rock. And Bobby Moynihan was up there. And, and during those years, I was raising kids. I wasn't even watching 30 Rock because I was not, I was too tired to be up that late. But I, he looked down and he saw that the Muppets were down there and he came down and he made his way through and he came up to me and he said, I've had two things that I wanted to do in my life. Only two things. One was to be on Saturday Night Live and the other one was to meet Dave Goals. Oh, and I man. thought, what? <laughs> wow. I That's great. I couldn't process it. Anyway, it was. It turns out to be a really sweet guy and so funny and so, oh God, he's amazing. It, and it, so he's a friend now, but that, that's 
that's how that happens, you know? Wow. Oh, that's so great. It's so funny hearing these stories about these celebrities and, and how much impact. I know I these two will probably grow, and I'll have to tell you, I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan on Apple TV. Oh, yeah. And uh, Brett Goldstein, who I just saw, he posted on Instagram that he got to play around with Oscar the Grouch recently. But yes. uh, he loves the Muppets, you know? like So it's just so cool to see these different uh, uh, actors and performers, like you said, uh, the celebrities that you've been able to interact with and just love of what you do, much like we do. You know, we all do. We all love the Muppets in that way. So great story with Bobby for sure. But, you know, I think that there might be yeah. some people out there who are just saying, you know, like, uh, I know that you took this path where you went into design school and then this got you here. Um, and it's hard to replicate anyone's path exactly. But wondering when you're asked to give advice to people about uh, becoming either a performer or in particular, a puppeteer, what is it that you tell them about that? What, what kind of advice would you give? Two words. Do it. Right. Find a way to do it. Just do it. You know, I mean, I was, I was doing uh, instructional videotapes at Hewlett Packard in their TV studio. Uh, they, they asked me to do one, you know, a, a tape about how to use the phone system. And I already had a couple of characters by that time that I had built. And so we did that. And I said, well, they said, how do we pay you? And I said, how about letting me use the studio for my own projects? And they said, okay. So, in, you know, in payment for, for doing their tape about how to use the international tie line telephone system, uh, I, I got to go in and I made a, a recording of the same two characters singing Rocky Raccoon. One was putting the other one to bed. And the, the one that was being put to bed was a big monster. So he was, it was kind of absurd from the get go. But so the young guy, uh, the kind of hip guy of the two sang Rocky Raccoon to the other guy to put him to sleep. And there were a bunch of little sight gags in it. And I learned a lot from that because I put it together with friends. I think there were about seven or eight of us. It took three months to make this five minute video. We recorded audio on, we recorded the music on eight tracks. Somebody had an eight track mixer. So it was recorded on just a reel to reel tape recorder, but, uh, but with a mixer. And so we had, and I learned about producing because the, everybody had families and I couldn't get the harmonica player when I could get the piano player. So I was running around with this tape recorder to people's houses, recording these little parts. And then I had to go shop for all the props. And I, and I realized, holy cow, five minutes, and it took me three months. But it was really fun to do. And, the, you know, HP opened their doors, and I could just go in there on the weekends and, and work, you know, with my friends. Dave, we just oh. have a couple a couple more questions for you. And one of those is that uh, you've talked about the pranks that you've worked on uh, while you're on set and working with the Muppets. Can you talk about any of your favorites as we begin to wrap up the interview? What were your, we love all those behind the scenes stories. We really eat those up. We so do. anything that you have that you'd like to mention to us? Oh boy. Well, how much time have you got? Whatever time you, you time have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we want to, we want to honor your time, but if you have stories, so we have the time. So, Honestly, there are so many. There was a culture of pranks and scares before I got there that were, that were largely between Donald Celine. He was usually the perpetrator. He would scare Jim. He would scare Frank. He would scare Jerry Jewell. Um, you know, one example would be that there was a dress form in the workshop, the Muppet Workshop. And uh, he would drape grungy old fabric and fake fur on this dress form. And then he would put a monster head on it with a beak sort of looking like a Skeksis. 
well before Skeksis were envisioned. And he would put it in the little bathroom. And uh, when you came into the to the uh, studio where we worked, they, you had to get off the elevator and then go into this little tiny bathroom, which just had a toilet and a little teensy sink that was like 10 by 6 inches big and a circuit breaker box. And so you would you open the box and you would flip on the master circuit for the entire workshop. And so the radio would come on and the lights and the air conditioners and everything would come. But you had to go into that little room to do it. And the door was usually closed. So, you know, Jim came in one morning and opened the door and the door was rigged with a string to this dress form. And this guy, this monster turned around <laughs> and actually approached you as you as oh, the wow. door opened. And Don had rigged this all up the night before and then gone home. And, and of course, he wasn't there when this happened. But it, But of course, Jim screamed. And and really loved it, and thanked Don for the scare. That that's sort of the kind of culture that was there when I got there. Um, I'll tell you. Oh God, I, what do I pick? Uh, well, one scare was Don Celine. Of course, was the original. I think he was probably the original prankster at Muppets, and he was this great Muppet maker. He built uh, Cookie Monster, Bert Grover. Ralph the dog, Baskerville the hound, uh, on and on and on. And he was just a genius. He was just, and, and also a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful character, a wonderful prank mentality. And, and, you know, creating this fantasy world that we're all living with where we were scaring each other. And so Don and I got this thing where we were, one of us was going to kill the other by scaring them. And uh, like one day he came into the shop and he had a cup of coffee and I got behind an internal door in, so in the shop and I, I could tell when he was right outside it and I, or he was like just out of reach of the door and I banged on the door and screamed and he threw the coffee up in the air and it came down all over him, you know, and he said, well, that's it. I'm going to kill you. And so we started this, we, it, you know, I, I had a war light. I had a red light bulb in a chandelier over my workbench and I turned on the war light. I said, okay, this is war then. <laughs> okay, we scared each other. He Like one day I would come into work and there was, uh, you saw this in Muppet Guys Talking if you happen to see it, uh, but there was a, a nice graphic that showed how it worked. But Don had rigged up an explosive squib on my desk under a bunch of papers. Oh, my And uh, he was like three desks up at his desk watching me and he had an electric doorbell, you know, just a little doorbell button from a hardware store under his desk. And the electrical wires ran along down to the baseboard, along the baseboard, up under my desk, and through a he had drilled a hole in my workbench and put this squib on top underneath papers, right? So all he had to do, and he had a battery, you know, a big 12-volt battery where he was on his end, all he had to do was push the button and my desk would explode. Which he did. <laughs> oh, no. And oh, no. You know, it was just such a lovely, lovely thing. But anyway, it, this went on back and forth, back and forth, and I decided, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna win, and I'm gonna <laughs> scare him so bad that he just dies. And so, Don's pattern was to come in at uh, about noon and work till about four thirty, and then leave. And he came back around eight and worked till about midnight. And nobody was there in the evening; everybody was gone. But that's that's that was his pattern. So I came back at seven p.m. And I had a piece of black uh, fabric, like velour, that I, I went in and I sat down on the toilet seat in the bathroom. And it, my scare was very simple. I was just covered up. It was dark. 
Uh, he was going to be coming back in about an hour. So I got myself underneath all this black fabric. And when he reached up to the, um, to turn on the master switch, there was just going to be a hand on that switch. Just still, <laughs> not moving at all, but a human hand so that he would touch a living thing. And it would just be sticking up out of all this blackness. It was all oh, dark. Wow. Couldn't see anything. And I was ready to go. And I thought, this is it. He'll, he'll, this will happen. He will fall over dead from a heart attack and I will win the scare game. <laughs> oh, man. Those are high stakes. Okay. Yeah. So eight o'clock, I'm ready. I'm under there. It's, I'm sweating too. It's a summer evening. It's like 95 degrees, 95% humidity. The air conditioners, everything's off. So I'm just miserable in there, but I'm committed to this joke. 8.30 comes no dawn. Nine o'clock, still no dawn. I'm still under the fabric. I'm just soaking wet now. 9 30 10 o'clock and i realized maybe he's not coming back tonight <laughs> and don oh. didn't come back that night oh no <laughs> and he lived he got to live <laughs> <laughs> what a what a what no a, it would have been perfect either so that it would have been perfect for our last question what we like to ask is sort of almost like what did we miss in talking to you because you've done so many of these different interviews and you're asked to recount all these different memories and stories but is there a message or a story that you don't often get to share that you'd like to that you'd just like to to tell us about as we start to as we wrap this up you just gave me a very good idea there i think um kindness in spite of all of our wars and all of our scares and all of our pranks, we were a little rep company and we were like brothers and sisters and we were, you know, sort of a family. And um, underneath it all, we were kind to each other. Jim was kind to me. You know, he was, he was so kind and he was so understanding and he did this with everybody, not just me, it was everybody. He, uh, you know, I wanted to go away and build a house at one point. He said, oh, okay, go for it. And and I went away and built a house outside of New York City, you know, in California. So he was potentially losing an everyday employee there mm-hmm. to that. But he allowed it because he just felt you can't stand in the way of people. Let them do what they want. And as a result, you'll find that almost everybody who knew Jim is undyingly loyal to it. Absolutely loyal because he was so kind. And the world needs this kind of kindness now. We need to kind of offer respect to each other. We need to be kinder. You yes, really yeah. need it. it. It's such a good message to leave on. And it's, again, something that uh, your care, it comes through so much in your characters as well that you've given to the world. So I can't begin to say thank you enough, not only for your time, but for your career and the uh, amount of laughs we've had, the, uh, the amount of lessons we've learned from you. So thank you so much for your time today, Dave. It's just been amazing getting to talk to you. Well, it's been fun talking to you guys too. Thank you so much. So thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Craig. Oh, thank, thank you, Brett. You. Thank you. We talked to Gonzo. What? <laughs> what? He had so many. He had so many fun and cool and interesting stories. Like that story about like the fight that he was having and uh, going back and forth and like waiting in the bathroom stall all night. Like hilarious stuff. Like this is just so great and fun. And it's so cool to think about the Muppets and Fraggle Rock and all these properties that are geared towards children. But we really love into adulthood. And part of the reason for that is you can tell that those. Those characters and those creators are having such an amazing time 
themselves. And, and it's so great to hear those behind the scenes, like antics that are going on. It's wonderful. So Brett, your thoughts on talking to Dave. Oh, well, the behind the scenes, things that we'll never get in any sort of other interview, but we got him. So that was so exciting. I love those stories. Oh my gosh. And, and, and growing up in about his creativity and how he came to the Muppets and all that, everything I ever wanted to know. Yay. It's just so awesome to get a chance to speak to him. Vanessa, I know you're a huge fan. So how was it? Oh my gosh, it was so exciting. And I have to say, can I give myself a little pat on the back for getting out my favorite line of A Christmas Carol and not stumbling over my words to him? And I think he was impressed, but that is my... (laughs) That is my favorite line in A Christmas Carol. And to hear also that some of the other fun moments, like, you're such an idiot. He made that up. He gave (laughs) us that. Of course, we talked about, you know, the pigs at the beginning saying, I think we should do lunch. Like, that was also him. It's just really cool to, to talk to someone who is so clever and witty and just has a lot of fun. You can tell from his stories from his love of these characters that he really does enjoy what he's doing. And then that comes through in the film. And that's, that's why we love them so much. I I'll tell you, I know that we are a Disney themed podcast, but if you want to dance your cares away and have worries for another day, Fraggle Rock is brand new back on Apple TV Plus. And so I would recommend that you go and check out Dave over there because if you look, I have not had a chance to really dive into it yet. I can't wait to show my son Fraggle Rock, but he is credited as one of the chief creators of that show as far as the characters that are going to be on the on the screen for you so i know he's doing a lot of voices there he's doing a lot of acting there and it's just so cool to get that opportunity to talk to somebody who has been working in this space for really decades and has been gonzo to us all our entire lives that uh that gonzo has been around it's just Remarkable that longevity yeah. with a character, but then also to still continue creating other characters and to think about other stories that he can tell. Just, just so great. And did you so guys great. hear it in his voice? Like when he talks, it kind of sounds like Gonzo talking. And then like when he would do a few of the lines, like you can, it, it's like, oh, wow, that's, that's your Gonzo voice. How exciting <laughs> is that? <laughs> Absolutely. It's just been great to get a chance to talk to Dave today. It's been a great to get a chance to talk to the two of you today. I think uh, we can go to any of our final thoughts that we have. So Vanessa, any final thoughts? Oh, wow. I'm just so excited. It's just, I, I don't know. I'm kind of blown away. Like, I'm not joking when I say that I really love a Christmas Carol, a Muppet Christmas Carol and the lines and the humor in that film are just, it's some of my favorite comedic writing. So to hear him, his voice, and then to talk to him about it and how much I love it. It's just, Oh, it's such a dream. This is just great. It absolutely is. So Brett, any final thoughts from you? Oh, well, I mean, when I, I I grew up watching the original Muppet show in reruns and um, yeah, anyway, and, uh, <laughs> and, and to, you know, to talk to Gonzo and the creator of Gonzo and Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, who he, who, who was based on his friends, kind of, sort of, and all this, all of that is just wonderful information that is just going to live in my brain for the longest time. And I'm so happy that we had this opportunity. Absolutely. So we have some really cool things coming up in the month of March. Of course, you heard our bracket episode on Disneyland last week. Next week, we get a chance to catch up with Tristan, who is one of our favorite listeners and uh, has been a guest on this show. He's going to bring his co-host, Sean. Tristan's got 
got a new Disney podcast. So, so Yay. excited for him. I want Woo. listeners to go out and listen to it now uh, in preparation. So it's Of Mice and Main Street Men. So Of Mice and Main Street Men, you can find it on anywhere you find podcasts. Definitely go and check that out. And then uh, hopefully we're going to be checking in with Justin Suter from the Disney Dads and talking all things Genie Plus because I, at the time of this recording, leave for Walt Disney World so soon. And Brett leaves for Walt Disney World, or I'm sorry, leaves for a galaxy far, far away. He's going to outer space. So soon. So soon. Bye, Brett. So soon. Hope you come back. So, and look forward to our trip reports that will come back at the end of March or early April. And it's just going to be so great. Um, Brett's just making editing a horrific time. No, no, no. Was was that your Darth Vader Vader voice? It was my Darth Vader, but Darth Vader really isn't. Did Darth Vader have a cold? What was that? Let's hear it again. He's got allergies. It's allergy season. Because it's more of a hober. It's more of like a. Yeah. I think they made those same noises on the set of cats. I always think it's more of like a. (laughs) Oh, that's good. That's good. We digress. Okay. Anyway, uh, he's going to Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. He's going to take a trip on the Halcyon. You'll hear all about it uh, from his Mm -hmm. Galactic Five. I like that name that you've given yourself. That was wonderful. So definitely some really cool stuff coming up in the very near future. We can't wait for you to hear it all. If you are a brand new listener because you're a huge fan of Dave Goals, please go back and listen to any of the interviews that we've done or, or listen to just our general Disney antics by looking up Beyond the Mouse on any podcast feed of your choice. You can also follow us on social media beyond the mouse pod on instagram beyond mouse on twitter and then also facebook beyond the mouse podcast is our page and then we do have a group beyond the mouse podcast pals we really recommend you join us there because then we can actually interact with you and we can talk some fun disney stuff i'm sure i'll be posting some pictures of my trip in that group and maybe brett's if if the cell phone reception is good enough from outer space, space yes a galaxy then maybe far, far maybe you'd be able yeah. to transmit some uh pictures back to us and back into so that group for sure mm-hmm. yes what from your data got, pad they got mm-hmm. at&t rising out there in the galaxy <laughs> far far away i don't know yeah hopefully <laughs> yeah well hopefully at&t yeah we'll just have to find out as we go and i can't wait for you to experience that and then to report it all back to us for sure the videos have looked so cool of that uh, galactic star cruiser and so excited for you to get to go on that but that is for another week it was great to talk to Dave Goals. Thank you so much to everything that he's done from the Muppets to Fraggle Rock to all of his other creative endeavors. It's just been great to get a chance to talk to him today. So for Beyond the Mouse, I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row. You know what? If you don't know who Dave Goals is, have you been living underneath a Fraggle Rock? Really? It was uh, it was one of my top goals to get to talk to Dave on this show. So I have no puns whatsoever. Sad. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>